0: I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing a CEO of Miller Ingenuity, a guy called Steve Blue. And we read through a whole lot of things together, but he's also, you know, written five different books and published those that really teach senior leaders and CEOs how to increase profit, take market share and destroy the competition. In fact, he's, uh, his third book was co-authored by a guy called Jack Canfield and became an immediate bestseller and Miller Ingenuity is really an international manufacturer of high technology products that saves lives and preserves the environment and Steve, what a great guy to talk to and he's also got some other books which are really, really quite cool for you to check out as well but you know what, he shared a whole lot of great stuff and one of the things we talked about was that leadership techniques that work today won't work tomorrow and the thing here, thing here is that What he's saying is that what we've done in the past won't be great tomorrow or for the future as well, and we need to be a little bit smarter as leaders in the way that we work with people and business and so forth. He said one thing today is that everybody wants to feel respected, and it's really important that we do, and that expectations have changed from the employees to the leader, which is really interesting. He talks about Harvey Mackay as a gentleman that he's partnered with, his business partner, but also somebody he admires as well as a leader and Tavi's written quite a few books and done a whole of stuff as well which is interesting but you know Steve's also a guy who knows a marketing guru around the world called Jay Abrahams and friends with him and really really quite cool. The other thing too is that we talked about leaders being facilitators not actually being just a leadership role or a title but we're there to facilitate things as a facilitator which is an interesting way of looking at things. So, listeners, I think it's a great episode. You know, when I interview people, they're all fantastic. But there's always this one every now and then that's just like, wow, this is really cool. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Leadership is Changing podcast. I have a great guest with me today. His name is Steve Blue, and Steve is a CEO of Miller Ingenuity. And Steve, a massive welcome to you. Well, thanks, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Now, for our listeners' sake, whereabouts are you in the world today?
1: In very cold and very snowy Minnesota, just
0: southeast of Minneapolis. It's amazing how we can use technology today to be able to do these kind of interviews. You know, we're, so we're in spring, heading our way towards summer, this part of the world, and you're into winter, and it's amazing how different it is. And you're getting very close to Thanksgiving. Yeah, we are. In fact, it's this week and a couple of days on, on Thursday. Yeah, it's so cool. By the time this gets aired, you would have had your Thanksgiving, you would have had your turkey and everything, and which would have been pretty cool. Now, uh, Thanksgiving, I had the privilege of having, well, most people would say, oh, you poor thing. And I actually had to stay in the U.S. when I was doing some events in that over Thanksgiving period of time. And I got to go to some friends' place and spend Thanksgiving with them in Texas, just uh, outside of Dallas. And it was just the best thing. It was uh, really wonderful. And I was so glad I did do it. I think that period of time for family and friends, that's awesome. Mm, I mean, best thing. Texas doesn't do turkeys down there. They probably do
1: pigs or something, oh, no. Huh? So they did do turkey.
0: Yeah, they did do turkey, but um, yeah, we did have the different pies as well, and pecan and pumpkin pie, and that. Yeah, you know, it was really quite good. So for me, it was just a great experience to see how it was all done and what people do. Now, Steve, I've just given our listeners a little bit of an introduction to you. Now, would you like to share more about your background please? place? We'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Sure, I'm the CEO of a, a global corporation
1: that makes life safety systems in the transportation space. We just celebrated our 75th anniversary, which has been unusual. Many companies these days don't make it that far. I've been the CEO for the last 25, so about a third of the life of the company I've been at the helm. And we sell our product in over 100 countries, so we're pretty well represented around the world. And our products are unique in that they're very high technology. We have, we have a range of low technology products, the high technology products, which is a bit unusual for many companies are either on one end of the spectrum or the other. And I started off as a a blue collar kid way, way, way back. My mother was a waitress. My father was a truck driver. They couldn't afford to put me through college. So I I joined the Navy, went through the Navy for four years and then went to night school until I was 40 before I got my bachelor's degree because I couldn't afford to do it any other way. And then I'm dating myself a little now. I didn't get my MBA until I was 52 because I had to do that at night as well. Anyway, along the way from all these experiences that I've had in uh, industry starting at the lowest levels of factory supervision up to the C-suite and the boardroom, I started writing books about my experiences. And I found, uh, Dennis, that writing tends to clarify your thinking and, and causes reflection that you might not normally have and so forth. So I ended up with five books. Uh, one of them was a bestseller that I co-wrote with Jack Canfield, and uh, which was a pretty cool experience. And I'm also a film producer. If you're familiar with Jay Abraham, hey. in fact, I just saw him the other night. I was one of the producers of the film. I can't remember exactly the title, but it was a Life and Times of Jay Abraham. And then also I started the professionally speaking, and I started off the usual way at Kiwanis Clubs and you know anybody who would listen to me. And then over the years, I got to be up quite good at it. I just did a speech at Carnegie Hall in July of this year, just received an XB Award from the National Academy of Expert Speakers in in LA a couple of weeks ago. That's my second XB Award for speaking. The first one was a keynote address I did at the United Nations back in 2019. So that's that's sort of a Cliff Notes version
0: of Steve. Mm, Oh, that's awesome. Fantastic. And I noticed that also part of your bio as well, it says about Steve's message, and a lot of it is about how a lot of businesses got wiped out during the pandemic side of things as well. Now, was it the pandemic's yep. fault or
1: what, what's your thoughts on that? I wasn't that good question, uh, not the pandemic's fault at all. Okay, this time it was a health crisis, uh-huh. right? Next, time it could be the government, which we now know could do any darn thing they want. The government passes a law that wipes you out of business or the government passes a law that greatly strengthens your competition or your competition makes a move you never anticipated Or an entrant from outside of your market that you've never even heard of all of a sudden swoops down and starts taking market share. So the pandemic is just emblematic of what can happen to a company. What I've written about a lot is most companies that didn't survive the pandemic, the reason they didn't survive it is because they were weak to begin with they had weak balance sheets when they came into the pandemic, and so therefore, they couldn't get out of it. And so, they never anticipated this kind of a problem, so therefore, they didn't think they needed a strong balance sheet. But one thing is for sure, and companies always have to have strong balance sheets, and that's kind of the message that I preach.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's what's going to be my next question to you. Maybe you've answered it, but maybe there's other aspects to as well. How does a CEO or a board think about and strategize for the future when these kind of things may happen but we don't know what could happen like headwinds and so forth governments making decisions and yeah. changing regulations or laws how do they actually prepare for that
1: you know I you know you can't prepare for everything yeah. I mean if you're prepared for everything you'd lock yourself down in a bunker and you'd never raise your <laughs> head and you wouldn't take any risks you wouldn't hire any employees you wouldn't buy any inventory you wouldn't do yeah. any anything So you have to have some reasonable balance between what could happen and what's likely to happen in the future, more government regulation or less. Okay, you can figure that, right? What's likely to happen in the future, more economic uncertainty or less? All right, that's a pretty safe bet. And so you can sort of lay out large parameters and broad areas where uncertainty will exist. And then you can look at what can I do to shore up my ability to withstand that uncertainty. And I always come down to, I always come down to two things. One is a strong balance sheet. There's two, three, three things you got to do. One, you got to have a strong balance sheet. Number two, you got to have a strong balance sheet. Number three, you got to have a strong balance sheet uh, because that is what gives you the ability to withstand uh, adversity. The other thing I tell CEOs all the time, Dennis, is that, you know, you see, you, you know, you work for a big company. Big corporations especially, but all corporations tend to have a blizzard of standards and incentives and goals and all that, and, and they often are in conflict with each other interorganizationally, hey. right? What I always, the example I always use is, and I'm being a little facetious, but not much because I've been around a long time. Quality guy, his goal is to have zero defects, right? That's his goal. Well, and then the manufacturing guy, on the other hand, his goal is to shove everything out the back door he can possibly shove out to make his goal, right? And so those goals tend to be like that. And So I tell CEOs all the time, I'm not saying that departments shouldn't have goals, but I'm saying everybody should get measured by one goal, and that is your profit budget. Everybody. And if you make the profit budget, everybody gets the, the goodies and the bonuses. And if you don't make the profit budget, nobody gets the goodies and the bonus. And you'd be surprised how that coalesces organizations when they all have like one number. And that's the second thing that kills businesses during pandemics and any other crisis. They're chasing all kinds of goals. I mean, you know, look at the Lehman Brothers from, what was it, 15 years ago, right? They go belly up, and their senior executives got millions and millions and millions of dollars of bonuses. Obviously, they weren't incentivized for profit, were they? They were incentivized for other. Mm-hmm.
0: That was 15 years ago. That's amazing how fast that's gone, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. I think 10, 15 years ago, Dennis,
1: because uh, now the new, the new Lehman Brothers is this cryptocurrency guy from whatever that company is. But yeah, Lehman Brothers was the trendsetter on how, how not to incentivize executives. Yeah,
0: absolutely was. Yeah, amazing. Cool. Good to get that kind of background as well. Now, Steve, you shared a little bit about your background as well, and, and you talked about different things you've done in your career. But how did you actually get into leadership?
1: Well, honestly, I looked at leaders who were really just stupid and ignorant and, and insufferable that I worked yep. for. and I said to myself, I've got to be able to do better than that. And that's the first motivation that I had to get into leadership. And it wasn't hard to get, you know, I was lucky, Dennis, because the first industrial job I had was with a company called Allen Bradley. You're probably familiar with them. Then they got bought by Rockwell Hmm. International. Allen Bradley, when I was there, was about a billion six in sales, privately held, no outside money at all. And they had one of the finest leadership training programs on the planet. So I was lucky. I landed with them. And so it, during my 13 or 14 years that I was with them, I, I came from a factory supervisor up to middle management before I made a move to another company. And I just, I saw in that situation, Dennis, I saw exactly how you're supposed to treat people. And I never saw, the, the few times that I saw people treat, managers treat people badly, Alan Bradley just flat out fired them. They got rid of them. They'd give them like one chance, you know, and then they'd say, you know, we can't teach this dog new tricks and they just wouldn't tolerate it. That's kind of how I, uh, the foundation for my leadership principles started yeah, right there. That's awesome. I know other companies I've I worked for other stupid people, people that were just it. I saw the wrong way to do things a few times the right ways to do things. But most of the time I worked for, you know, executive CEOs that just really did dumb stuff. And, and it just sort
0: of shaped my belief and how I uh, approach leadership. And it, and it does really shape us, doesn't it? I mean, our experiences with Leaders who are dumb, stupid, and do th- silly things versus those who do some really good things as well. And they sort of shape us to say, that's the kind of leader I don't want to be like. And that's the kind of leader I do want to be like, or emulate some of that and take little bits from everybody as well, which then becomes the sum of where you are today.
1: Well, and that's exactly right. And unfortunately, you got to get older <laughs>
0: yeah. to have old. all. <laughs> Just, and, and as we're getting uh-huh. older, Steve, does that sort of so and that experience of doing that and working that that obviously would give us more experience, or do some people just keep doing the dumb things all the time? Well, you know the answer to that. I mean, what is it? You got one year of experience
1: repeated twenty yeah. times. I've seen plenty of people. They they get it in their head. If you're lucky to have lucky enough to have good mentors. This doesn't happen to you. But if you're not, you get it in your head was, you know, this is the way to, this is how you treat people. You tell them to do what they have to do. And if they don't, you get rid of them. I mean, and and you don't, that's the only thing you ever think of. I remember my mother said to me once, and in my company, in the factory, it's all completely employee driven. We don't have any bosses out there telling anybody what to do. They decide what to build every day. They build it. No, without a boss around. Anyway, it's self-directed workforce. When my mother first heard about that, God rest her soul, she goes, how do you know those people are going to be working out there? I said, well, mom, I said, if
0: I doubt whether they'll be working out there, then I get the wrong people. Yep, yep, totally. That is so cool. So cool. And you know how you're just talking about things. What I wanted to ask you here was, if somebody who's in a C-suite today wanting to go into the CEO role or somebody who may be in a senior leadership role wanting to go into the C-suite they may not have been fortunate enough to have some real strong leadership development around them, which they should have, but sometimes there isn't. What, what are your thoughts on what yeah. maybe one or two things that they should be thinking about to do to help develop themselves or put in place and on a way on their journey to those different roles? Any ideas?
1: Yeah, yeah I do. When I was with Alan Bradley, uh, once you reached a certain level, uh, generally upper middle management, they'd send you to what we call charm school. And that was basically an organization, they're probably still around, called the Center for Creative Leadership. They're down in, I believe it's Greensboro, North Carolina. And before you would go to charm school, you'd have all kinds of, fill out all kinds of psychological assessment tools. You'd fill them out, you know, the MMPI uh, and and all the others. And then all, all of your peers would profile you. Your superior would profile you. Subordinates would profile you. And so by the time you get to charm school, Everybody's weighed in on who you are, what, what you're all yep. about, right? And it's kind of, kind of scary because you go through charm school discovering what your weaknesses are because your strengths will never kill you. Your weaknesses can destroy you, but your strengths won't. So you go through, it's about a week of discovery along with a bunch of psychologists and all the feedback that uh, everyone around you had provided. And at that point in time, you get, and you get a great big thick binder. Now it's probably digital when you leave. Then you have the greatest possible view of what your strengths and weaknesses are, and an action plan to strengthen the weaknesses. If you didn't have a mentor, that would be something you'd really, uh, you'd really yeah, want to good, do.
0: Some good points. You know hey, you're talking about those thick folders. I remember doing events around the world. Either I, I participated or I was actually the facilitator, and seeing people walk out of those rooms with those big folders under their arms and getting on flights. And you can see them when you're on a flight, people walking down the aisle with those folders in a bag because the folder was so big, they couldn't fit it into their bag. So they had to carry it personally. And it was like, oh, you went on to that. How was that program? And yeah, that's how yeah, it was really good. Steve, now you may have several, but who's the one favorite leader that could be alive or from history. So who's your favorite leader and why? Well, I
1: have to tell you, he's also my partner in the business. His name is Harvey McKay. And for those of the younger crowd may not quite know, he's six times uh, New York Times bestselling list. Fortune magazine called him one of the top six uh, professional speakers in the world. He started, bought a failing envelope company in his 20s, turned to a $100 million business. And when you listen to I was just at his 90th birthday party in wow. Phoenix. or And I was at his 80th 10 years ago. And so he brings three or 350 of his best friends to celebrate with him. you know, And the guy is an absolute, complete, uh, motivational person. And he's an inspiration. When you talk to the guy, it's like you feel good when you walk away from him. He doesn't have to say much, but he knows exactly what to say and he knows exactly how to say it. He knows exactly when to say it to motivate people. He's probably one of the smartest guys in the world too. But my estimation is his biggest strength is his ability to motivate people. And I've used his techniques, and I've kind of watched him for I've been in business with him for uh, 24 years, so I kind of know the guy. So he would be my number yeah. one.
0: I was I'm going to ask this question, it might be a little bit weird to list this one because you've worked with the guy for so long and know him So, well, would the if you two were sitting down having a cup of coffee on a park bench somewhere, would there be one question that Steve would love to ask him? You know, that is an unfair question because I've asked no, him, sure. everything. I think
1: I could whenever I want to. I would suppose, yeah, there is one thing. He hasn't done this yet, and I've been meaning to ask him. He's written all kinds of books, selling, marketing, leadership, motivation, all that kind of stuff. But I would ask him, why don't you write a book about how Harvey McKay became Harvey McKay? we got the little snippets and these little vertical, you know, and if he wrote a book about exactly what I did in my life to become who I am
0: today, I think that would be a huge, huge, yeah, I think it would be. I'd love to read that. That'd be awesome. Because I think that's also about him. Yeah. That's also about him and his legacy, right? About how he, what he's done over the time. Because there are people who will want to go along the journey or go and do something like that in their careers and so forth. And they could learn so much from his journey. I think it'd be wonderful. Yeah. Now, the yeah. show, the title of the show here is called Leadership is Changing. When I mention that title, what does that mean for Steve? Well, you know... In some respects, uh, leadership techniques that work today probably won't
1: work well tomorrow. In, in, in other respects, though, in my view, the best practices of leadership uh, withstand the test of time because generally, what le- in my view, what leadership is is, is how you treat yeah. people. And it all comes down to that. I mean, okay, yeah, I got to get my way around a balance sheet. You know, I have to understand marketing. And, you know, what a minimum viable product is, and I get to get into all that stuff. But at the end of the day, none of that works without the people that are working on it. And one timeless leadership principle, in my view, is if you treat people with respect and with sensitivity as to what their issues and problems are, both personally and, and at a business perspective, And you support them and you reinforce the kind of behavior you want, give them the tools and techniques that they need to be successful and get out of their way. Now, that's that's not a new leadership concept, Dennis. You know that. You've heard it for years and years. But it works. It really does work. And I would say that will stay constant going forward. Now, the problem that people, particularly older executives like me, they have trouble understanding the... uh, what is it? The millenniums and what's which, which the ones behind them? The, the millennials? Gen
0: Zs or the, um, yeah, yeah you know. the Gen Zs.
1: Because, and what they want the Gen Zs to do or the millennials to do is they want them to conform to their model of how an employee should be. It just doesn't work that way. You have to, I tell CEOs all the time, you have to understand the millennials. You just can't write them off as a bunch of useless people that you wouldn't hire anyway because won't be anybody left to hire. So you got to understand them. What does motivate them? What motivates them? You know, when you and I were growing up, you worked 60 or 70 hours a week. You didn't complain. You just did what you had to do and come home and do it again. That's not the way with this crowd. They want to have, you know, free massages. They want to have beer uh, and pizza for lunch on a Friday. I'm just using some kind of silly examples, but you have to be able to accommodate as the demographics of the workforce change going forward. You have to be able to change uh, with them. Other than some of the constants that are lower. Like one constant I preach all the time is everybody wants to feel respected. Every single human being on this planet wants that. And if you ignore that, you ignore that at your peril. You know, they have all this uh, quiet quitting stuff now. You know, now it's a trend. Now now it's, it's horrible because somebody named it. But quiet quitting has been going on, as you know, for decades and decades and decades. And if you go back to the, uh, there's a seminal study that was done by Harvard Business School 20 years ago. What's most important to people in their work? Number one was not pay. Number one was not promotions. Number one was <laughs> respect. And they were leaving in droves 20 years ago because they
0: weren't treated with respect and didn't feel like they had
1: respect. And I would say that's very true today and it'll be true tomorrow.
0: Yep. I think that one thing that I've always taught and always want to do is treat people and I want them to leave me feeling better than when they came to me and I think that if they yep. if I can do that and respect them in a way by listening to them being there with them and because you know they actually might have a better idea than me and they yeah. so that would be pretty yeah, yeah and that would be pretty cool right to yeah. to be able to do that and yeah. but no our stubbornness or our what we think we know will get in the way of that and that's not not good enough and I think what's actually happened is some of us have learnt this from the past, these things that you're talking about, Steve, but some people have actually forgotten that and they need to wake up to those yeah. kind of things. And I think that uh, that leaving quietly is one thing, but I think that it depends on the generations because they leave and they go on to this thing called Red Door, I think it's called, and they go on, no, Glass Door is what it's called, and they go on and they actually will name you and shame you as the leader and saying all sorts of things. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's a shame to see that happen, but you know what, sometimes some leaders are having to wake up. And one thing I'm saying, I don't know if we're in the U.S., but we yeah, you did. You have the great generation, uh, resignation. We've also got the same thing here, yeah. whereby people can't find people to hire. And I'm going like, well, where are all the people gone? I mean, what do you mean you can't find them? And so I think a lot of people have gone and said, see you later corporate world. I want to go and do my own thing or I want to go and do something different. And um, they've taken the pandemic to reskill themselves um, and they've gone off to go and do something totally different now.
1: That is one thing that the pandemic did. It uh, caused great numbers of people, especially uh, any age group, but I think more so uh, on the uh, group that was this maybe 10 years to retirement, couldn't stop and stop and consider everything. I had lots of time to sit around. I might have died from this uh, COVID. And, and so, therefore, and I think that that has had a great yep. impact. Yep. Absolutely. And if anything, that, that should make you appreciate people more because you, you want to exactly.
0: come back. Exactly. There you go. Absolutely. Now, the other thing is, uh, another question I've got for you is that, you know, you and I are living in a world that's getting faster all the time, or well, it seems to be getting faster, and technology is probably driving a lot of it, but whether it be in social side of things, data, business, the way that business has been done, and so forth, in a fast-paced, ever-changing world, what do you reckon a leader needs to do to be successful today as an individual, as a leader?
1: Well, you really have to keep up on what the drivers are that fast-changing in the world, and uh, you have to be... Very, very well written I read—I don't know—five to six books a month. Most of them business books, but not some of them are historical books. And I try to get as broad a view as I can of what's happening in the world around me. And there are big chunks that you can look at, right? So you've got technologies, you know. And I don't have an engineering degree, right? I'm a working guy, and and I've got an MBA, but so I, I don't understand a lot of. But I have to understand from a broad basis how it might impact my business societal trends to some degree you have to keep on top of. Political, unfortunately, I have to sort of keep your eye on that. But I, I did a mastermind group a number of years ago, and one of the members said, at some point in time, we got to talk about the politics situation. I said, no, we're not ever going to talk about that because we can't do anything no. about that. We just have to keep our minds around what we can control. So I just try to be as well. Uh, and also, I have people around me who are just experts at everything. You know, I got an engineering guy who's got a master's degree and a a PhD, and I call him my scientist. He's the smartest guy. Now, my senior VPs of uh, sales and marketing are just like that. And we get together often, and we just exchange exchange ideas, talk to each other about what's kind of going on in the world around here, because a CEO can awfully make a deadly mistake, Dennis, and you know this too, sitting in the corner office and thinking he knows everything, but he doesn't really know anything.
0: No sitting on their pedestal or sitting there in the ivory tower, as I call it, Steve, uh, and they're not out there. And they're not yep. walking the floors. And they're not out there listening to the people, talking to the people. And I know today's working from home and so forth, it's a little bit difficult to do it, but you could still touch base and have touch points with people. And I'm actually blown away by the number of execs, senior leaders, frontline leaders, whoever you talk to, who do not stay on the, on the cutting edge or stay ahead of the curve by reading more, Listening to more things, understanding more things, and again, they're like not doing it, and they go, "But I don't have time." And I'm like, "Come on, you need, to, you, yeah, you, you exactly, do. you need to do this, and it has to be done. Otherwise, Steve, in my introduction to the podcast, I talk about leaders going from email to email, meeting to meeting, and leaders not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. And I think the thing that you've yep. just shared, the fact that they you're well-read and staying in touch with what's going on is one thing that's going to help people stay hidden and, and not become real, relevant and, and be relevant and help their business stay relevant as yep. well. I'll give you just quick, quick examples because you mentioned it, walking the factory
1: floor. When I worked for Alan Bradley, Harry Bradley, one of the founders of the company, he lived on the, I don't know, 20th floor of the building right above the factory. That's where he lived. He had a penthouse up there. And Harry used to walk the factory floors during the midnight shift all the time. And it wasn't to find out if people were working. It was to make sure they were being treated properly. And I'll just give you a quick story of how this stuck with me so many years later. I was walking through my factory floor just the other day, and I see this one woman. She's pretty new. She's been with us for a month, I guess. I don't know. And she's running from this machine over that machine. She's working like three machines in a robot. And she is working her butt off. And it wasn't because I was out there, because she didn't even know I was out there, because she had her back to me. So anyway, I walked up to her and I said, you go, girl. I said, you were all over this operation. And she was flabbergasted because no one had ever said any The CEO never talked to her that way before. She sent me an email later in the day thanking me for noticing and, and apologizing for her reaction because this, it had never yeah. happened to her before. And imagine what that does for motivation. And then they tell their friends and they tell their neighbors and they tell everybody. And then that, that, that helps recruiting. It's just sort of, it's like
0: a flywheel. Yeah. It's, I mean, that that's that's spot on what you just said there. Because I think it's, it's something that a lot of people don't understand. If you actually touch people in the sense of being there just to say what you did there, Steve, as you said, they go and talk to so yep. many other people. It attracts talent. Right. It brings people into the organization, exactly. but it also retains people in the organization. And I think it's yep. something that's so simple to do. But sometimes egos and people and, you know, I'm, I'm the leader and that get in the way of it. Mm. Yeah. 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 Very right. much so. Now, Steve, you and I have been talking about from the lens or the perspective of leaders and leadership. Let's change a little bit here and talk about from a perspective of an employee. How has employees' expectations of leaders changed? A lot. You know, when you and I were
1: growing up and we were first into into business and industry, we had no expectations of leaders. No. Really. I mean, uh, it was all a one-way street, you know, the expectations were on us. And okay, that's fine. I mean, it molded us, it shaped us, and to some degree, it was useful. Now, people's expectations of leaders these days are to be sensitive to my needs, to give me career opportunities, and to understand that the pandemic scared the living hell out of me, and I'm not quite certain what's going to happen in the world next. So if you can give me some support, some guidance, and encouragement, some certainty... That's what people are looking for from uh, leaders today. Plus, always, more than ever now, they expect leaders to be very communicative. Don't hide things. Don't conceal. Now, there's some things I can't talk about, obviously. We're privately held companies, so I can't talk about a lot of the numbers. But other than what I can't talk about, I tell employees everything. You know, I, I treat them like adults, not like kids. Some Leaders that like, oh, go, we can't tell there there could be a layoff because otherwise they'll revolt. They'll they'll feel bad. They'll go home oh, crying. The more you treat people
0: like adults, the more they will act like them. So I think communication is just really high on the yeah. list. I like what you say there. Treat them like adults, and they'll be like adults. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's awesome. I'm just taking notes here. I think oh, I'm loving this. This is really good. Now the other thing too that you've just said there is about treating them like adults. If an organization today is going to go through a big change program or, you know, and when I'm saying that there might be a brand new system being brought on board, right? Or it could be the fact that they're changing for growth. And most people, when they think about change, they're thinking about reductions and redundancies and things like that. And it's not always that way. It could be the other way around. You talked about communication as well as vital for a senior leader today. What's your thoughts or your opinion around, hey, if you're going to go through a massive change, there's one or two things that you probably need to do as a leader to make sure that it's a successful change. Any ideas on what people should be doing?
1: Oh, yeah. I I have a lot of experience in that. In fact, that's probably what I've done mostly in my career. Smaller changes and huge changes. The latest was about five years ago when I launched our flagship high technology product, which is something we had never done before. And until that point in time, we had some electronic products, but not primarily or mostly the uh, lower technology products, right? So people who have lower technology experience. Well, you introduce uh, a new product like that, it's high technology. The first thing everybody else that's not in the high technology thing thinks is that means I'm going to be out of a job. This is this this technology is going to replace me, and and I know that, so I don't wait for that. So I went out. And it's a very, it's a multifaceted process, of course. But one thing I made sure that people understood was nobody is going to lose a job because we're going into this market. Nobody. Now, that's a risky proposition, right? Because there could, uh, there could be a recession. There could be, you know, com- competition takes market share. So, but if you want people to go along with the program and be reasonably comfortable with the program, you have to give them those assurances. And the other thing I did, Dennis, at a broad based once this high-tech product got going, you know, there was a certain number of people who were working in that, and they could easily be perceived as, oh, they're the golden boys, huh? And I guess I'm not because I'm making the flat-footed stuff. And I always made a point every meeting when we were talking about stuff to, to make sure everybody understood that they are not the cool kids. Everybody is the cool kids. And that way, the you know, the natural animosity that would occur between the groups just... Never occurred, and I think on a broadly on a broad basis, you know those kind of actions and massive communications. When you're doing something like that, you got to be part cheerleader, you have to be part bully, and you have to be part you know bullhorn. But and you gotta you gotta move your board along because they're they're worried about it. They're they're wondering what's going to happen. You got to move your employees along. You got to move the shareholders along. So you have to sort of massage every one of those areas. But the number one thing is communicate, communicate, communicate with with everything you know. And people will do the right thing if you
0: treat mm-hmm. them right. I think I see your role as the CEO there and that, that kind of scenario you just talked about as the facilitator, right? Because you're facilitating the board, you're facilitating the employees, the, the leadership team, the stakeholders, as you said, which is really, really important. Yep. Now, the other thing too is, because what's quite interesting is I find that a lot of organizations I work with, change has not gone well for them. Because of the fact of lack yeah. of communication. There's a void. And yep. so people feel like they have to fill it. Yep. And then that's where you get a lot of gossip and everyone talking, right? So yep. it's really important. But also, I also like what you said about the, and the way I wrote it down, Steve, was the one team or the one company kind of mindset. It's, it's one. So in other words, there's not just the cool yep. kids in on one area. It's everybody and everyone's included. So this inclusivity is really important for the lot. Um, yep. I think it's really important. Yep. Mm.
1: Now, you know what? I have, now that you mentioned, I have a concept called one, a team one or one team. I can't remember which one it is now. I, I don't have to do that now because I did that years ago, but I take my senior leadership team. And I say, you know what? You, Mr. Marketing guy, you, Mr. Sales guy, you, Mr. Development guy, you play on the senior leadership team. You don't play on the marketing team. You don't play on the sales team. You don't play in the development team. And I had one particular guy that just couldn't, it was the sales guy. And couldn't deal with that. And I finally had to let them go because, you know, you, you, you're you my basketball team. You're not no. theirs anymore. And so everything you do has to be in support of the senior leadership team. And that's worked out pretty well because then you avoid all this kind of stuff between the sales guy and the engineering
0: guy because we're all on the same yeah. team. And I think there's there's a question I ask. And uh, Patrick Lencioni, the author of the book, of, of several books as well that you know, he hmm. talks about, you know, what's your number one team? And most people say it's the team that they lead. And it's not; it's the team that you're part of, and that's that's yeah, and that should exactly. be one team for sure. Yeah, very good. All righty, Steve, I can get you to get your uh, crystal ball down now and talk about think about the future here. Um, where do you see leadership being in five years?
1: Well, in five years, leadership should be a lot less prominent and a lot less important and a lot less necessary than it is today. If people play their cards right, leaders become unnecessary. Sure. To your point facilitators we need, right? We're always going to need facilitators. And the job of a facilitator, and I know you did a lot of this, is to, you know, sort of coalesce different organizations and different interests and all that moving in the right direction. Nudge a little bit here, encourage a little bit there, you know. And in the future, leaders won't be leaders. They'll be facilitators. And so they have to start thinking of themselves. You didn't want to think of yourself managers. That's a bad word. We don't want to use the word manager anymore because now we're all yep. leaders, right? And so now we get them all used to being leaders. And uh, now the next transformation, in my view, is be everybody's a facilitator, right? And so some people at the top that will scare them to go, wait a minute. Well, I'm not a facilitator facilitator has no power facilitator can only you know like suggest and you know encourage and all that kind of stuff but they can't demand and people at in leadership positions that are afraid to give up that quote-unquote power which i don't think they have to begin with yeah. but they do then they will make that yeah. transition oh
0: that's great i, li- I like what you see there because i think the thing here is that with its leader facilitator what do you want to call it it's just a name it's just a, a label it's what you do with it that counts, yep. right? And so if you can facilitate those kind of conversations, that kind of work, that's going to be the winner, I think, going forward too. Steve, Absolutely. it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, if our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where can they go? The easiest would be my personal website, which links to my business website, com. That's just easier to spell than Miller Ingenuity. Sure, sure. Very good. All right, we'll put those into the show notes. But once again, Steve... Thank you so much for joining me on this Leadership is Changing podcast. It was a pleasure talking to you, Dennis. Thanks for having me. There you go, listeners. Another wonderful episode on the Leadership is Changing podcast with our guest today, Steve Blue. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, bye for now.